How's it going, guys? I'm Zeke. And I'm Jake. And you're listening to the Cinema Sideshow Podcast, episode 255. Oh, Zeke. I am 255 pounds of pure love. I feel like I actually have seen this movie. I'd be surprised. I never heard of this film, personally. From 2008. It's called Fireproof. No, I have not. I'm Fireproof. From memory, and I wrote this quote down like a couple of weeks ago, I'm not going to lie, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing he's a big chubby man who's proud of his weight. 255. That's a lot. That's a lot. On the brink of a divorce, Catherine wants nothing to do with Caleb. Ooh. Yeah. That That's the whole logline. It's a Christian film. Oh. Okay. Nice. Fair enough. I will say, though, because we've shouted this website at Playphrase, which is a great website to find quotes. You can put a quote in, it comes up with every single film. Yes. That uses the quote. And there's one, I'll tease it, the quote for next week. 256 it came up and I was like oh that's a quote from this film and uh, the film title it said in the corner was completely wrong I was like really wow like just complete I was like I, I'm like I know this movie like the back of my hand it's definitely this movie but it's the same it's some other random so I might have been getting some of these wrong all this time Zeke <laughs> it's mm. just concerning but but uh, we're just gonna keep chugging forward Zeke Yes. How was your trip this past week? It was very good. Jackson Brown was great. Oh, excellent. You've, you finally got to see him. I did. I did. <laughs> Does the if, audience if, know about this odyssey? No. Um, well, Jackson. Um, no. Um, <laughs> obviously, he planned to have tours. Um, he actually came here to Perth. Oh, okay. And I had bought tickets to the Sydney and Melbourne show and mm. flights and all that because I thought... Um, technically, the one in Perth was a was an evening on the green at, at um, Kings Park, and okay. we a few years ago saw a concert together, Jake, at mm. Kings Park. It just came up and, on my memories the other day when we met Cat Empire, and it was I, that that famed night. Yes, it was. Um, and it's it's quite funny because I remember us obviously that experience was incredible, mm. and we liked the concert, but it was terrible to get home from. Oh um, yeah, that was um, yeah. And I, I genuinely... Uber's cancelling all the time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I, to be honest, I thought, I'm seeing him in these small concert halls in Melbourne and Sydney. And I was like, oh, I don't need to buy the ticket to the uh, the Perth show. Turns out after the Perth show, he got really sick. Mm. Cancelled the Melbourne-Sydney shows. And, and you went there. <laughs> you flew I, over. And I flew over. <laughs> because you can't really cancel flights. When they cancel, when you're already there, I was already there. You'd when already you already flown in, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> so, oh, that's horrible. What? Yeah. Six months on, he's attempted this run again. Mm. I didn't go see the Melbourne Sydney show because, obviously, full time job, you can't really go midweek to those concerts. So, sure. But I did manage to see him in Brisbane. First time to Brisbane. Oh, how was that? Oh, uh, it's good. It's not really my cup of tea of, of a place. I, th- I I've now gone to every capital city in Australia. Nice, well done. Um, and I think for me, and it's going to be the most um, like probably most unpopular opinion. I think Adelaide is actually my favourite out of all of them. Okay. Um, is it like quieter than the others? Or? It's like Perth, but like I don't know the same energy, but cooler. Okay. <laughs> um. <laughs> I guess I, people I, don't talk about Adelaide. That's no, true. I really liked Adelaide. To be fair, I was very young when I went to Hobart, so that could I could shift. But um, well, I, I think I've spent a total of one night in Brisbane, and I was twelve years old. Eleven. I was eleven years old. So I, I right. can't really review that experience either. 
but yes, um, it was it was a good night, I think. Mm. Um, it, and the the weekend was really nice. Mm. I'm not really a fan of this. Uh, I don't think I'd get into the whole like oh weekend getaway to a random like be gone for two days in a sure. different state. It seems like way too much effort <sighs> for like but, how quickly you got to get back into life. Yeah. Mm. Um, but a good, good primer for Europe to come. So exactly. How are you, Jake? Very exciting. Well, I, I didn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> it, it has been quite a busy week, but I, I didn't travel. I didn't go flying, so that that is a, a positive. But um, I've just been watching, frankly, a ton of films. Zeke. How many? Um, lots, a lot. A lot. <laughs> a lot. I would say. Uh, so I mean, you just mentioned it. Going to Europe, there will be pre-records. Very shortly. Yeah. Um, not next week, but the week after, I believe. Mm-hmm. So I've just been watching a bunch of stuff to sort of cater and spread out throughout that schedule. So I've seen 11 films since last, since our last recording with Stephen. the last time I had an 11 film Oh, week. it's insane. Now, two of them were rewatches for films we're going okay. to be discussing um, throughout the show, and, and several of them I'm not going to talk about today. I'll start with... Well, excuse me, I'm getting way ahead of myself. Let's start with Blazing Saddles, because yes. that is the film of the week, and we need to talk about some trivia, Zeke. We can't go past about talking Absolutely. some trivia. We're not Mel Brooks. We're not going to you know, mess with the timeline. No. <laughs> we can't do that. Um, should I should I start with my trivia facts, Zeke? Absolutely. Okay, go for it. I can do that. I'm, I'm very excited. So, And I read this. And I'm, okay, so my trivia fact is not even true. I'm going to preface that. What? <laughs> <laughs> but I saw this on IMDb, and I went down a rabbit hole, and I was like, this is so interesting. So it is claimed that this film, Blazing Saddles 1974, has the first audible fart in film history, which I thought was very strange. Now, I think Mel Brooks talks about this in the, I guess, the DVD commentary track, and he says the joke or the idea for the farting scene where they're all just randomly farting, which, which is a great scene because it's almost like without the sound designers adding the farts in, I could see people watching this film and not... Like, because they're not performing as if they're farting. Yeah. They're not moving around. They're just eating food. And they've that's almost half the joke, I feel, is that it's just the sound effect that's been, you know, sort of lazily put in there. Um, so I, I thought it was quite funny. The reason they came up with this joke was when they were watching old westerns, they would notice that the cowboys pretty much only ever consumed plates of beans and black coffee. And they kind of thought, they should be fighting a lot more than they do in these yeah. movies. Now, the reason I say it's a false fact, I did find a film, a Japanese film from 1959 called Good Morning, where there are indeed characters fighting in that film. So I, I think that might be a little bit of a Mel Brooks pat on the back sort of thing that isn't necessarily true. But maybe Western cinema? Hollywood films, maybe? First fart ever? can't believe you went searching for the first fart ever in film but <laughs> i certainly did but a lot of people do point to blazing saddles which um i guess in terms of the way it's used the fact that it became more popularized i think it was one of the only things the studios ever asked before the film's release to remove because it was too offensive zeke <laughs> it's the most offensive thing in this film by yes, far there's there's and there's totally nothing offensive in this film <laughs> nothing else <laughs> Oh god, well Zeke, do you have any fun trivia for me? I mean, there's a ton, right? Mm, like for that sure. you could go for. Um but one of the most iconic things is of course the uh in any western mm. is the number that grips you into the narrative and 
And this one has a song that, to be honest, is actually, well, it's a bit of a banger. Um, <laughs> the Blazing Saddles, uh, Blazing Saddles uh, theme song yes. uh, was uh, written and obviously sung by Frankie Lane. Um, and he was actually told that uh, after the fact that this uh, theme song was for a comedy because he actually thought originally it was for a dramatic Western. Mm. Um, and Brooks was worried that Lane wouldn't sing it um, with conviction if he knew the truth. So that's that sort of... Um, and to be fair, you hear the that opening theme and you see the, the crash title. And if yeah. you're unfamiliar with a Mel Brooks comedy, which this is relatively early in a, in a Mel Brooks for sure. ex-career, yeah. you would be... Um, have the belief that you were seeing a, a, another spaghetti western a, a classic wholesome john wayne-esque film um yeah well that's i guess that's it it's a good point you made. where if if mel brooks approached you to do a song in the 90s you probably have a good idea that it's for a comedy or a satire film but i guess in the early 70s like i would if someone i would imagine that someone approached to do the song they'd be like oh mel oh he did the producers that was that was a fun little film. Oh, he's doing a Western. He's really broadening his horizons. Okay, interesting. Mm. So I, I can see that being the case. You're right. Very yeah. Interesting. And it, there is a ton. There is a metric ton of trivia that we'll probably dive into when we're talking a little bit more about the film. Sure. Well, I'll, I'll rely on you with a lot more of the historical aspects because you've, you've seen this film many times, I imagine. Yeah, I think at least six or seven times. Ooh, so cool. It's my most viewed mel brooks film but not my only viewed mel brooks film oh very good i will i will say this jake when it comes to the films i've watched this week i have watched uh you know i've actually done okay okay i've done okay this this week i've i've done five films uh and one series which i can Ooh. log on letterbox oh, very um, nice. uh, three of those five films though are rewatches, including this film of the week sure but Jake, with eleven, I think you have to go first. Yeah, yeah. Well, like, like I said, I won't talk about all eleven today, yeah. but <laughs> it's been crazy. I'll start with, and this is the one that sort of has the least to do with anything else we're going to be talking about today. But I did catch it at Luna last uh, Monday because we recorded a bit earlier for our last episode, so I actually had the Monday off, and I got the invite. Hey, they're doing the Aliens double screening at Luna, so I I've seen Alien before. Mm. Ridley Scott. I've never seen Aliens, James Cameron. So first off the bucket list. Off the bucket list. I know. That kind of feels like one of the 100 poster films I should be taking off. It's not in there. I think the original is. But, but yeah, I finally watched Aliens, plural, from 1986. And the I think it was tricky for me because it had been a while since I had seen the original Ridley Scott film. So it was that thing of like using my memory to be able to tell the differences. But right off the bat, I could sort of tell... I think the joke that I made is much like the characters in the film, and there is a lot of scenes of characters sort of welding and breaking apart the environment. It almost feels like James Cameron is sort of cutting and welding through Ridley Scott's own iconic sets and props, Mm. and especially like the the organic creatures that were made for these films. Uh, with this idea of I'm going to make like a more exciting action sequel, very Terminator-esque. And it even has like the clanking metal sounds as part of its soundtrack, which I appreciated. But I think that also comes from this idea of every time people talk about Aliens, they always talk about the original being more of a survival horror film. And then, you know, the James Cameron one being more of an action exciting mm. one. And I definitely understand where that comes from. 
but it almost feels like it's sort of purposely putting that at the front especially with all the cocky military characters that are all like you know oh we can take on any challenges it'll be easy and I feel like the film and the story slowly reverts back into survival horror by the end as more people are dying it becomes more about um you know Ripley surviving and then there's the sort of the mother relationship going on there where she's sort of tending to this little kid or this little girl um I thought that was all really interesting and especially with the of course the final creature is also a mother (laughs) so I thought that whole motherhood sort of arc the protective nature of motherhood I thought that was all quite interesting and uh, uh, woven into there so I enjoyed it quite a bit no which is your favourite out of out of those two? I've only seen Alien. Oh, okay. You haven't seen it. We any. were both on the same. Now right. You, now gotcha. you're a, now I'm ahead of you. Elevated. <laughs> no, I've I've wanted to watch it. I think um, I would probably watch the first film again and then and follow I, it. That's follow probably suit. a good idea. Um, because yeah. it, it's a direct sequel. Oh, so like like the first scene of the new of the second one is yeah exactly it goes straight. I guess into it kind of makes story. sense. I mean. Yeah, I think that's a good good starting point too, isn't it? Because um, mm. then it makes it feel like the aliens are a more burgeoning threat, and they're not just this oddity that existed in one instance. Yeah, well, you're you're, you're this you as the audience is sort of on the Ripley side in terms of she's the audience surrogate, and so when she meets these new characters, mm. none of them understand or believe in the danger she's trying to warn them of. So I think in terms of a rewatch, it definitely makes sense. So you're like, okay, this is this is what's at stake. And then even though there is a gigantic passage of time between the two films, Ripley, the character, doesn't feel that time change. Yeah. So neither will the audience if, if for example, you do rewatch the first, go straight into the second. So I definitely recommend that. Thank now, you. I saw two other films. Sure. These Now, I, I apologized last week because I was meant to be ticking off one film per week off my poster my scratchy poster and i didn't do one last week no you didn't it's meant to have done braveheart very naughty i know so i did two this week both related to blazing saddles in some way shape or form uh so i'll start with the satire film satire comedy i've never seen a monty python film that's wild she's a holy grail no, it was Life of Brian was the one on the poster. It's <laughs> great. Um, I was generally surprised at how much I enjoyed it and not only thought it was very funny, but how coherent the narrative is considering it is just sketch comedy. Yes. This is like a bunch of scenarios we're going to like loosely tie together. Uh, and I was like, wow, this actually kind of really works in terms of the coherent narrative, you know, taking place in this time period. I think it was... It was a little weird because I, I swear to God it said um, 33 AD on there, even though that would technically be after Jesus died. Mm. But he's obviously still alive in this in this um, time period. That oh, the film well, he takes dies place. at 33. Well, yeah, exactly. It must be like literally right before. Well, I guess the whole point is the narrative is. Reperping the death of Jesus, yeah. Yeah, so but Brian, that Brian takes that place, exactly. Yes. Um and I, I think part of it as well, because like I, I know a few people, very Christian, who are like, you know, this film's sacrilegious. And I watched it, and I was like, it really isn't, because a lot of the humor, it's not necessarily making fun of, like, the values of Christianity so much. It definitely makes fun of the, like, obsession that people have with finding, you know, like a messiah or a leader and following that leader to incredible lengths. Mm. <laughs> and it kind of makes fun of that crowd mob mentality that comes out of that. So I'm not necessarily making fun of 
any religions individually or at all, which I thought was sort of a key ingredient to thinking this film's not as sacrilegious as I think people might have may have made it out to be necessarily. But I I just really enjoyed the you know crazy humor in the film. It's very irreverent and you know, it goes from things like the spaceship sequence that <laughs> randomly happens halfway through the film or or Brian being allowed to paint the um like the slogans across the entire palace <laughs> before being told, "All right, now never do it again." Like there's a lot of moments like that that I thought were quite humorous, quite yeah. funny. I do like Life of Brian, but mm. I, I think the Holy Grail is is my favorite. Okay, um, that's more like the Crusades era. It's the King Arthur story. King Arthur, gotcha. Um, oh, there is like a... New Testament, isn't it? This era, yeah. But gotcha. to say to you the obsession of religion that you're talking about, that does lead into the series that I covered Ooh. this week. So I did okay. Download. I think this is the first time I've ever done this. I downloaded before going on the flight from Brisbane to Perth. Ah. Um, this entire series. It was six episodes at 30-ish minutes an episode. So it was on your and, phone. Yeah, and gotcha. watched the entire series on my nice. phone. Nice. <laughs> um, this is the sequel to How to Become a Tyrant, um, which oh. is a Netflix series that's narrated by Peter Dinklage, um, in which I've also watched... I uh, actually watched that and discussed it on the show, God, maybe a year or two ago, mm. um, and thought it was good. Um, it was an interesting way of presenting it in terms of the basically just a collection of historical figures that were dictators and how they rose to power. Yeah. It's just a history dump series, but it was the way that it presented it through this playbook narration oh. from Peter Dinklage. Um, obviously having that Game of Thrones kind of subtext there, which mm. I do think's one very of the reasons why he's very intentional and in. yeah. He comes back to do this how to become a cult leader in which we follow uh, six of the the most well known cult leaders and, and it was very interesting. I found it mm. was... Uh, there were probably one episode in there that was kind of a bit meh, but most of them were pretty solid. Um, like I said, I love the presentation of it to make it a little bit more dynamic, a little bit more interesting. Sure. Keeping it to 30 minutes makes it really great because it means it's not overstaying its welcome. It's not mm. trying to milk episodes, which sometimes Netflix docuseries... Oh, most, most certainly. So is do. each episode like a different leader? Or? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah, and... With loose ties, so like it, it has this pattern where, um, at about the twenty-minute mark, almost of the episode, they they kind of go, oh, and this strategy was also used by this leader that we're going to be covering mm. later. Like it's ah, like peppering in. We're going to be covering previews, yeah. And it's clever. It is clever in its presentation format. It's real. Like I said, it's a really easy. I literally went what episode one through to six yep. throughout the flight, no issue. Um, Man, my phone's got such good battery. Like it was like <laughs> by the end of finishing all six episodes, it was only down to like sixty eight percent. Oh wow! So how how new is the phone? Pretty new. Like it's okay, like two well, or three months. There you go. Um, I've had my phone, my current phone, Samsung A fifty three, which I got pretty cheap, less than five hundred bucks. Um, had amazing battery, and I think the last like month or two is when I'm I'm starting to be like, man, it's draining quicker than I'm. Used to. It's a little, yeah. little concerning. But I, I have a question for you. Sure. Uh, any of those six episodes, do they include Biggest Dickus? No. They don't? That's a shame. No, they don't include Biggest Dickus. <laughs> I've shown um, that scene to so many people since I watched that film. <laughs> so he good. has a wife, you know. <laughs> but it is, it, it's, oh, a, it's a good series. It's a fun, it's a nice one of those popcorn sort of series. That yeah. You're like, yeah, that was, that was a good watch. Um, finished season one of The Bear. Um, nice. Which I think is, a, um, obviously having Stephen on the show 
last week. Sort I think that was an, we, we had prompting a, a, you to. Well, we had a conversation. <laughs> well, I was like, yeah, okay, I'm gonna give like I was enjoying the show, but now mm. I'm gonna start spurring forward um, because people were clamoring for that season three. Yeah. Um. Uh. So, yeah, first season, very solid pilot season. I think. Um. Mm. There is an episode. Episode seven is that shoe drop episode for the series where you're okay. like, okay. This is really, hook. it's the big hook episode. And it's of course <laughs> the second last episode of the season. And I went, I've seen this pattern before. Uh, yeah. It's becoming very common now. The whole, like the second to last episode is the big. Yeah. Because it's all drop. one shot. It's a 25 minute Ooh, episode and it's all wow. one shot. There you go. Um, and it's great. Cause it's of course the episode where characters hit their lowest point. Everything hits the fan and you're like, this is fantastic. This mm. is like, it is. It, like you said, it's a pace setter kind of episode. Um, oh God, I do. I really don't have to want to get re-get Disney Plus, but... <laughs> it's all right. I'll hook you up. Oh, you can hook me up. Um, I did steal your binge to watch Blazing Saddles, yeah. so... <laughs> What's it got? It's got cinema side show. Oh, cinema like, tax write-off. Tax or so. write-off. <laughs> um, oh, I'm keeping that name, even after the show's finished. I'm keeping yeah. the name on there. I understand. So... <laughs> What else did you cover? Oh, God. Well, the other film of the two poster films I caught, of course, the other one was sort of a comedy satire, but this one also ties to Blazing Saddles in that it is a classic spaghetti western. Zeke, I finally watched The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Um, Wow. It's a great film. He doesn't miss. Sergio Leone does not miss. He don't miss. (laughs) I think, because we talked about Once Upon a Time in the West so long ago, episode 40, I believe it was our director's corner there, which so that's the funny thing is like even, I mean, with, with today is like, oh, I got to watch this film, this film, this film. We're covering the whole director's arc, and then go back to episode forty. Is like, I watched one film to cover the entire director's. Yeah, <laughs> but well, that's learning. I think I, that's I think true. that is a genuine difference between the early uh, episodes, mm. those early director's corners versus the later ones. I think. It's interesting because we do those director's corners to put a spotlight on the director, but yep. you never you never stop talking about them after the fact. Mm. I mean, I, we could say that about all of them. I think... But by That's the, true. Yeah. I guess because there's the argument that a director's corner, you're right, is just bringing, like, a, shining a little light on that director and that the film we, we pick to discuss is generally representative of their work. And I think we do tend to like to go to the earlier works... Mm-hmm. Um, and I think Blazing Saddles is kind of a nice example of it's certainly not in the latter half of his career, but it's also probably the most important film in his career, yeah. I would say. Um, just as Once Upon a Time in the West. I, I mean, but then again, I think The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly might be more popular than Once Upon a mm. Time in the West, um, at least according to Letterboxd from what I saw. But, you know, it's got his trademark, long silences, very careful, slow pacing, but ultimately fantastic building of tension and payoffs like it's got all of that i mean the score holy cow one of the best scores ever made of course i mean you can say about half of their films but i think what i found most interesting about this film is as a spaghetti western we're so used to morally gray characters Mm -hmm. doing morally gray things and that you sometimes you might not even know who to root for in any given scenario and i thought this was interesting in that the film goes out of its way to really label everyone and everything. I mean, you got the title of the film, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, each refer to an individual person. 
and not necessarily their moral system, which is for all of them guided by money and the chase of the dollar. It's more about what they do to get that dollar. Yes. And and in the sense of, uh, I guess, Tuco would represent the ugly in the sense that I guess it's him we first meet when he's he's robbing that joint. And then you got the bad as well, which is, I think it's Angel Eyes, who's a bit more sophisticated, but is ultimately still a very bad dude and will interrogate someone, immediately kill them. Yes. And then... Clint Eastwood as the good, uh, Blondie, if you will. But again, it's like he is the representation of good. It's like he's still not the almighty, you know, white savior of the West in this film. Like he's still, there's still aspects of his character that are a little like moral or morally gray, yeah. I should say. Like, so I, I think it's interesting they're applying these labels to really separate them. And, and just the constant, Tuco says constantly, like, ah, oh, there's two kinds of people in this world. And he sings, says things like, "Ah, oh, those who enter through the door, enter through, uh, and those who enter through the window, those who are hung by the rope, those who cut it." Just like this constant binary association of people in the world, and that even the backdrop, the civil war of this film, is against two the the um the the Union and the um Confederates, like it's two opposing sides. So there's this constant labeling and constant binary sort of assigning. Of yeah. things, which I thought was very interesting, almost kind of goes against what we're used to in spaghetti westerns. Absolutely, but I I enjoyed the hell out of the film. It's I thought it was film. fantastic. Yeah. It is, they're it's pretty hard to say any of those are not are bad films when mm. it comes from Sergio Leone. It is hard to beat Once Upon a Time in the West, though. Oh, it's perfect. It's just... I still I still think it's like the greatest soundtrack in all of cinema and not just the music but like the use of sound yeah i would i would advocate and support you in that notion here here <laughs> yeah yeah no oh, that's that, it. i almost lost my voice system what's going on <laughs> <laughs> i was moved by the film oh my goodness <laughs> well the only other two films i saw in relation to blazing saddles were also from director mel brooks so I don't know if we should save that until the second half of the show, that discussion. I think so. I think so. Um, I only really have another film to add. One of the beauties of going away sometimes is you're mm. able to... Uh, well, I spent the first night in Brisbane uh, by myself um, and was... Aww. Yeah, I was all right. My, <laughs> you know, it was... I, I decided I went out and had a nice dinner and then went back to the room and watched uh, a film. I watched a film that to be honest, it's one of those... The beauty of either watching films that are provided by the airline or in the hotel, mm. they have these quirky ones that are just like, oh, okay. what is that film? Um, and <laughs> this was a 2023 film by Mark... Um, I'm going to say Mark Turtletop, but... Or Turtletop? <laughs> I genuinely... You're not turtly enough for the Turtle Club. <laughs> and I'm so sorry if it's... it's tur- I think it's it would be a Turtle Tour, but... With like a silent B on the end, but I I kid you not, his name <laughs> is T U R T L E, like turtle, and yeah. then Torp, Turtle Torp, <laughs> the coolest surname ever. Um, I'm gonna have to look this up. Is, is the film you're referring to called Jules? You are correct. Okay, um, Turtle Top. <laughs> That's awesome. That's an awesome name. Uh, and um. So it's obviously it's a kind of a quirky kind of uh, comedy um, where you've got a trio of elderly actors and yep. basically in this very quiet small country community um, in which uh, the character played by Ben Kingsley mm. um, 
is sort of an elderly man who is in the early stages of um, sort of dementia and Alzheimer's. Yeah. And it's kind of one of them cute dramedies is probably what I would... Oh, okay, I see. And the big hook is one night an alien crashes in his backyard. And it's sort of at first, the first 20 minutes is him just going up to random people in the town and going, there's an alien in my backyard. Like, it's crashed. But because of his... <laughs> his age and... His right, age and gotcha. stuff, People just don't even clock on to he's telling the truth. Yeah. Because he's a bit awkward and, and quirky and, and Kingsley's performance is really nice. It's just a nice film. It's kind of got that feeling like a, a, a garden state or a, hmm. um, these sort of films that... Speaking of I, like the Lionel Liffham, is that the name of the film? Yeah. Yeah, I saw a few weeks ago. These are kind of those films Quirky. that have kind of the sadder undertones to them, sure, and and the tragedy and aspect. And obviously you've got three elderly actors who are talking about their their deaths of their other... Their, two of them are, are widows, so mm-hmm. they talk about the deaths of their um, uh, other elderly partners and, and they kind of create this relationship through looking after this alien who doesn't speak the entire film. Mm. It's It's fun. It's cute. It's one of those kind of films that you just enjoy and... You're not going to be taking too seriously. It did make me laugh quite a bit, which That's I good. think, to its credit, not no, mm. it did have like really good comedic moments. Um, the, I think that I love watching these kind of quirky films because they you don't see them on platforms or they don't pop up on your feeds. Yeah, or, well, they're not. On, you're lucky, Zeke. They're not on any streaming services at the moment, so. There you go. Yeah. And that's kind of the... I love I love that. It's like the one thing I'm looking forward to. It's like in that flight from Singapore, like Perth to Singapore, Singapore to London, mm. is on those big long-haul flights, they still have the screen in the back of the in the back of the seat and I'm just going to be there like cycling through films. <laughs> I think the last time I went on a, a international flight, I think I did in one 18-hour haul, I did like eight films. Oh, wow. Which went... Yeah. And you see films that, like, yeah, like you said, you never see, like, like a few years ago when everyone was talking about, like, The Last Black Man in San Francisco Mm. and stuff. These films that you can't find anywhere unless you rent them off YouTube and stuff. And they're just just on these airlines or these hotels and you're like, okay, I'll watch it. It's a good way to, yeah, nab the traveling person to watch some films and there you go. They don't have a lot of choices. So you get get some unique ones on there. I like that. I like that a lot. That's, uh, that's, yeah. The other film that I watched, obviously, was a Mel Brooks film, which we can talk about mm. in the second half of the show. Beautiful. I know you also rewatched. Was it was it both before Sunset oh, yes. and Sunrise? Sorry, I totally forgot about that. Yeah, no, no I wanted to give it a little shout out. Yeah, it's kind of good. Uh, you know, obviously, I you know we've we've talked about developing sort of. I think I've talked a little bit about developing uh, a feature script, and that mm. being one of the kind of quiet goals of my twenty twenty three was. Uh, sort of solidify myself as a teacher and write a feature script. Um, and what better character-driven pieces <laughs> are there than the before films? I have to say, though, watching those two films back-to-back, which I didn't do last time... Right, you waited a few weeks I did, until I, we, we covered we, them on the podcast. I separated right? them in the, the nine-week blocks mm. that we did in terms of the show because I wanted to have that... To feel the time pass. Yeah, yeah, a little bit more. Whereas watching them back to back is a is a completely different experience mm. because you're getting that immediate gratification of what happens after um, Celine gets on the uh, Celine gets on the train. Yeah. Um, and 
I'm I'm adamant now. I think Before Sunset is the best of the trilogy. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's it is a it is a mountain in terms of, um and and the reasons I say it um weren't the reasons I originally thought. I thought oh, okay. Um at first I liked the film because of, uh things like the the elongated one shot sort of just that two shot that that goes at the front and then cuts to the back of them goes to the front cuts yep. to the back of them. But what I found really interesting is is that the pacing of that second film the I love the awkward fifteen minutes at the start of the mm. the, the film when we're we're getting um, Ethan Hawke's character of Jesse who's at this book reading and he and he sees this girl that he's talking about and I love how quick and we, I think we talked about it on the episode but I love how quick they just address what happened at the end of the, mm. the previous film. And then it's about, like, their relationships and they're talking about, like... Well, him... that's a big driving question as well, is, is how truthful are they in the things they're saying and the emotion behind it. Yeah. Because it's all this, like, oh, yeah, like, I, I had this thing on or I forgot or this or that. And it's the thing that is chipped away as the film goes on is, like, how emotionally devastated they were by those things and the the that chink of armor slowly being revealed to each other throughout the film. I also love how much Jesse's character, from the moment he sees Celine from the go, mm. is like, "I'm leaving my wife and going for this." <laughs> like, and it's so there. And what I found yeah. really interesting is is I actually find I found the second this time. And this is that age thing. I was like, in the first film, I was like fully on Celine's side. Like the whole, I think mm. Jesse's very like hairy fairing and at times is so cynical for no read like he like the right. when the palm reader's there and it was so interesting i was like i'm having a completely different viewing experience like mm. i've completely shifted perspectives that's the beauty um, of these films and the fact that you're having that really only a year or two removed from your first watch yeah i think it says a lot i think especially for before midnight my opinion on celine changes every time i watch that film and it's magical because it's you're growing up the same way that these characters are growing up and developing. Yeah. And it's it's a thing, isn't it? And it, it is interesting in that second film. He is so... From the get-go, that's a part of it. And, and Celine is indulging it but doesn't want to be that person. Mm. And it's just so funny, the, the, the way it unfolds and the trauma aspects to it. But it, it is amazing how much... I love how much both of them try to so indirectly elongate their experience with each other. <laughs> yes. Getting on the ferry. Oh, I've never been on the ferry before. Oh, this is such a great experience. And I'm just sitting there. I'm like, man, you two are just like doing everything. It's, oh, we'll get the driver to come pick us up and drop you off. Yeah. I had to laugh in that scene when they're having that, the big blowout, basically. Mm, their the emotional car. bursts. And he hasn't got like a, a privacy window, the driver. So the yeah. driver's <laughs> hearing this all unfold and he's just like... But you think about that as well, and, and uh, this is going to get pretty tangential, but like you think about sec- like security guards, drivers for like... I mean, think about like Logan Roy's driver, the kind of shit he would hear. But like in a real life... Imagine the people in the White House... Yeah, they would have incredible stories of things that have happened Absolutely. that's not allowed to talk about. And 
but it kind of feeds a little bit into that where the, you know, oh, the driver just watches it's, all this happen. None yeah. of them. It's none of his business. And he obviously he's just doing his job. His job yep. is to get Jesse to the airport, basically, and he fails that job. But <laughs> um, he got fired after got the film finished. <laughs> but it, it's interesting because there's so many like oh, it's just so many perfect. Before nuances. retirement is his spinoff film. A part of me wants one more. And I'm so yeah. I'm kind of bummed we didn't. I'm, I, they missed the train for that, unfortunately. Pun intended. Well, I mean, the argument is like, do you ever really miss the train? Like, yeah, I guess they've missed that perfect nine-year increment. Yeah, yeah. Like they've broke that aspect, but I mean, what's the difference in physical appearance between if they they did the film at fifty-five, but they're playing fifty-year-olds? You know, it's like. Sure, but it's not even the physical. It's, I mean, that's the whole beauty of those films. Is they're capturing these perfect little time capsules in their lives at this point. I mean, th- those yeah. are the meetings that you know the two of them and Richard Linklater would have before making a new one. Is okay, where are we at with our lives? You know, divorce, having children, um, you know, fear of death. I don't know, like all of these things that now matter to us in this age. So you, you could be missing somebody really crucial in that like early fifties part of their life. I don't know. Yeah, I think you got a very valid point there. It would be. I hope we get at something like that again. Mm. Like I, I genuinely hope that there is a a film out there that will encapsulate that same sort of time, place, perspective narrative. Because maybe it, you're gonna have to do it with your film, Jake. <laughs> yeah, righto. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see. Oh. Um, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that. Yeah, the company is on the same. Well, he was very experienced when he did these films, wasn't he? At this point, but yeah. um, I lo- I just I adore that second film. Mm. I think it's the what I like about the second film. I think more than the f- the first is it is just it's a Celine and Jesse film. There's there's yeah. no apart from that prologue, and I guess. The, the driver's interaction in the, the almost the epilogue of the, sure. of the film. It's just them. Mm. Whereas in the the first film, and it's kind of important because they, it helps act, well, it fuels literally the narrative. Well, the, the people the, of Vienna are interacting with them constantly. Yeah. And and that's a big part of romanticizing the night, of, if uh, in the words mm. of Celine. And, and I think that that's so interesting because. Yeah, in the second film, it's like, no, no, this is now about their relationship. And I think, oh, watching them again, it was just like, yep, this is my favourite trilogy. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't wow. think. It's just so well written. And the reward for watching it and the unique viewing experience you get every time. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, we recently did Lord of the Rings, and I would probably say arguably that was like my favourite trilogy before. Sure. The before trilogy. <laughs> Um, before the before trilogy entered your life and to be honest I was affirmed how much I loved that trilogy and how that trilogy is brilliant Mm. when we watched it and reviewed it Um, and it has a different level of satisfaction to it but the like I said this alternative viewing experience looking literally dissecting these characters I don't Mm. think you you get many cross examinations and that it's so nice when we get to see films like what the Duplasses did with Blue Jay, where yeah. it's like all these sort of character pieces still exist, where it really is just characters existing in a world and really exploring the, the intricate psychological states based on the context of what has happened, what is yeah. happening, and what could happen. Mm. Um, I'm very excited to 
hear how that all influences your writing, Zeke? Mm, we'll see. We'll see. Let's hope, it, <laughs> let's hope it goes the way it should go. Well, to kick off there, I guess that was a bit of a segue into the career update right yeah. there. I'll just give a shout out that we got our final VFX in for Skin and Blister. We're in contact with a colorist and the final, final stages of post uh, are upon us. So. I genuinely hope that we're still on the air when the, the final finish happens. Yeah, I it um, should be. It should be. I don't see why this film... I guess it depends on the colorist's schedule. Yeah, sure. But other than that, I don't see why the film would not be done before Christmas, let alone when we finish the podcast later in January. So I think we'll be all right. Very exciting. Well, then it is time for us to move into the film of the week. Hmm. And our latest, our second last ever director's call. Oh, yikes. Jake, who's the director and what are we watching? This week in the show, Zeke, we're talking about Mel Brooks's Blazing Saddles. So just sign this, yes, sir, right here. Okay, give us a hand here. All right, sir. Work, 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 work. Okay, folks, let's wipe it out! The heroic sheriff rallies his citizens in the wildest finish the West has ever seen or the movies have ever shown. Oh! 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 Have you ever seen such cruelty? Hedley Lamar, a corrupt politician, hires an African-American man as a sheriff of a small town to drive its residents away, but he's about iron backfires when the townspeople start to like the sheriff. The <laughs> plan! <laughs> well done. You got me. <laughs> you broke me, Zeke. Oh. Add Mongo energy right then. You did. Oh, he's the best. you got to punch a horse right in the face. <laughs> and you get it now. So when you watch Shrek 2, you get what the oh, Mongo references. Of course. That's Mongo, why the, the, the gingerbread big, man, the massive gingerbread man, is oh called Mongo. Oh my god, I didn't even think about that. That's genius. Yeah, I love it. And it's it makes that whole sequence mm. so that I need a hero, which is the best scene in all of the Shrek films. Oh, that absolutely. I need a hero um, <laughs> montage performance. It's so good. Oh man, well there you go. I think there's a lot of sort of references and things and places that would originate from Blazing Saddles. I mean. Yeah, this was my first time watching it, so we're on very different wavelengths in terms of our relationship to this film. And I, it's tricky because I did sort of watch this... I mean, I've, I've now seen four Mel Brooks films. I watched The Producers not that long ago. I think it was when we talked about The Castle with Andy. I mean, yes. it was that episode. So, like 15 episodes ago, or 16. And then I watched uh, Young Frankenstein's Spaceballs and... Blazing Saddles all sort of back-to-back, essentially, over this past week. So my 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 thoughts really do sort of get congested with his other films. And I think the thing that really struck out to me, or stuck out, I should say, and, and I guess you would agree with me based on the rating you gave earlier, um, that the, the further into his career he goes, the more sort of satirical and fourth-wall breaking and... Um, as a filmmaker that he gets, and it gets to the point where it almost doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it, I would. I'm inclined to agree with you. I, I think um, if we look at um, by the time you get to Spaceballs, it, it, mm. you know, it. 
I, I was kind of, I had to giggle because of the, the production value, which I know is kind of like the joke in it too. Yeah, like the cheap costumes um, and things like that. It, it doesn't hit, I think, the way that a film like um, Blazing Saddle, which I do think is his uh, career highlight, as someone mm. who has seen Blazing Saddle, Spaceballs, and Men in Tights. So that's oh, five cool. films. You've seen Men in Tights yep. between, uh, and both of us seem to think Blazing Saddles is his is his best film. Well, um, I, I I would make an argument for the producers, but this is to my point. That was his directorial debut, and I didn't realize that. And that film, it it doesn't even there's satire elements in it because it's about two people making a play that's meant to be like very pro Hitler and kind of similar to Blazing Saddles, coming up with this plan that backfires, a plan that's meant to scare people away, and it doesn't quite work out that way. So it actually has a very similar sort of narrative, but. You know, between all those other ones, I mean, Young Frankenstein, Blazing Saddles, and Space World, those are all very directly parroting either specific films or genres. You know, the classic monster horror film or the Western. And the producers, the ones it, that's so removed from that sort of Mel Brooks persona that we know. And for me, I think that's almost part of the reason why I think it's my favorite of his films. Yeah. That's but that fair. being said, I think Blazing Saddles is probably the funniest. Of his parody films, I would say. Yeah. I, I I think that it's pretty hard to beat the comedy. Mm. In I think it hits almost every joke, still hits now. It's as and... hard as that horse got hit in the face. I'm going to keep mentioning because that's the best. That's my favourite part in the film. It and so comes out of nowhere as well. It really does. <laughs> I don't think you've I've ever seen someone like... And in that situation, it's yeah. just hilarious because it's like... They meant to teach that horse to go down. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing as well is the horse is acting better yeah. than anyone else in that film at that point. <laughs> but there's, there's, there's like you know, it's like when he, when um, he's going down the street and the old lady's just like up yours. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the N word. There's things we can't even repeat on this no, show. The, the lines not. in this film, but that killed me as well. And then, but, and then Gene Wilder being like, "Well, what did you expect her to say?" <laughs> and look. That is a big aspect of of this particular film, um, mm. but like you said, let, I mean, let's sort of build into Blazing Saddles. Like you said, sure. um, I haven't seen the producers; I didn't get time, unfortunately, to that's watch right. it, which is such a shame because that's that's kind of the one. But I do think you're hitting the nail on the head with the um, almost the like you said the the parodying nature is what kind of leads the slow diminishing of returns i mm. think in his career i mean if you look at the letterbox community they're, they're very pro mel brooks um yeah he's got a lot of great scores yeah. a lot of really good scores even for a film that both you and i um have given that real middle of the road sort of um, mark mm. and i think for me i just didn't like it almost felt more um austin powers-esque space balls right. And I'm not a big Austin Powers fan, but it almost had that Mike Myers comedy aspect to it, where it it felt a little bit more. Um, it was too silly. At yeah, a it point. was too silly, and mm. it had that the Wayne's World and and sort of that sort of style, which it does work, but it's not really what I f- associate with Mel Brooks. I, I, I it just feels less clever, and I think, and it's a shame because like we, we were talking to Stephen last week in the show, and he was. 
he was raving about space balls and and I think unfortunately and part of this is we might have just because we were watching it by ourselves we were watching it with a crowd of people mm. maybe that's part of it but I just felt the humor by the time we got to space balls it was so just sort of it just felt so lazy and the thing as well was that that's when he goes I mean even more so than blazing saddles I mean blazing saddles it feels very purposeful when they break the fourth wall like up until that point Mel Brooks is really just every now and then a camera will sort of nod to the or glance at the lens or maybe he'll make a comment uh, to the lens and Blazing Saddles I I imagine the first time when he goes crazy where it's like they're literally travelling between film sets Um, so funny it's great but then when we get to Spaceballs it feels like he's doing it just because that's his reputation by that point yeah and there's interesting ideas like I like the idea of them pulling out the Spaceball VHS and watching the movie themselves to figure out where the other people are, like there are actually really funny moments. Like I'm mm. not going to take away. I, I, there are. It's one of those things that there are comedies out there that genuinely the ones that really bomb are the ones that just don't make you laugh at all. And yep. that VHS sequence, that's funny. Mm. The, the, the jabs at what maybe a maybe a spaceball film would be more funny now with the Disney Disneyification, yeah, for of sure. of it. But the Star Wars parody eight years into what or ten years into mm. Star Wars being a, a property maybe that was too early because you know you're looking at what other what are the other things that he's deconstructed well young Frankenstein that's going as far back as the 30s in terms of yes. like the monster the monster pick the spaghetti western was like this prominent fixture of that time but even having the Hollywood grandiose critique in there yeah. in Blazing Saddles um, like the big blockbuster aspect to mm. it, the fifties um, dance number and things like that. Yeah, I mean, Men in Tights, I, I think is trying to. I don't know what that's trying to make fun of. I think it's just a Robin Hood. It almost feels Monty Python esque, where okay. they've just picked a more a, a like like a King Arthur tale and just deconstructed it mm. that way. Um, but less skit comedy and more through narrative. Maybe like a Princess Bride esque thing. Okay, but I don't yep. really know what to link it to. But I agree in the sense that I literally wrote the same thing, is that maybe this film needed more time to be released because you got films like... I didn't realise this until a few days ago. I didn't realise that Moonraker was a Bond film that took place in space. I didn't realise that existed, Bond in space. And that came out in 1979. So you're right, the immediacy of the space opera becoming like a thing and popular. While with this, the thing I wanted more out of Spaceballs was there's the merchandising jokes. Yep. Which is great. That's fantastic. I wish they took that further. I wish they had something to say about the audiences of these space operas. And like you said, maybe we needed to go through the Disney Star Wars phase and get into you know the late 2010s or early 2020s to really be like, wow, Star Wars fans are awful. We should really make fun of them. <laughs> yeah. And it didn't really... You're right. I think it came out at a weird time where it was too late to have that sort of immediacy that like Moonraker would have but too early to make criticisms that especially us in today's age could appreciate or have fun with can you believe he's still alive wow he's 97 Ooh. and he's still alive so to say and, and let's be real Clint Eastwood's making films in his 90s yes, Mel true. Brooks could have made his space balls in the last five he could have made in the last five years um so the, no, ball, but, the I, balls strike back look well obviously not going to smudge one of the best i reckon one of the most pioneers of a sarcastic self-aware comedy sure 
because um, Mel Brooks brought that sort of wave in the 70s, and that actually is his contribution to that massive um, developmental wave in, in cinema, that mm-hmm. golden decade, because uh, this is a guy that took political issues and brought them to the forefront and challenged them in, in sarcastic depictions. But when you look at something like, yeah, Spaceballs, and, and we look at, like you said, things that maybe took, waited a little longer and then created a, a comedy that hit more. I mean, we talk about the Something Something Dark Side uh, Family Guy parody yeah, yeah. of Empire Strikes Back, and it's it's funny. It really is genuinely I, funny, and it has a self-awareness to it. I think part of the reason those are quite funny is because you're meshing two IPs together, where like half the humor yes. comes from our familiarity with Family Guy characters portraying Star Wars characters and them having that sort of irreverent comedy. Yeah. So I understand the comparison. I definitely made that same comparison. But the thing is, Spaceballs doesn't have that. It doesn't have a second established IP of characters. So, you know, compared to Blazing Saddles, which again is more of a, a, a comedy on the genre itself or a satire of the genre itself. So it has more wiggle room to create its own story. And same with Young Frankenstein, where it's just retelling the Frankenstein story. But, you know, with a few extra jokes in there, it does the, the malfunctioning, spinning book bookshelf joke like 15 years before The Last Crusade does it, for example. Mm. And But even that in and itself is like, oh, it feels like a commentary on the, the, the never-ending franchise because it's just doing the same Frankenstein story over and over again. It kind of felt smart in doing that. But with Spaceballs, it's just like, oh, it's just the Star Wars plot. Yeah. And then when you take, like, films like Galaxy Quest, where they're, mm. they're taking, like, they're, they're actually paradise, like, they're putting the parody on the uh, sci-fi genre as a broader scope, and particularly right. Star Trek. But right. it, I think that that's a film that has a little bit more intellect to it, because it, it has an arc, but it's still funny and stuff. And mm. I, I know that's not really Mel Brooks's... MO is something that's got a way more concentrated plot with like clear well, arcs. Sure, and that but stuff. it's like Blazing Saddles has it, and Young Frankenstein has it far more than than Spaceball has it. And I and I will say like yes, there are other things in Spaceballs. There is a two thousand and one joke in there. There is a Planet of the Apes joke in there. Like there are things in there, but the plot is just Star the Star Wars plot. Yeah. And oh look, the camera bumped into his big helmet. Ha ha. Yeah. I don't know. I'm sorry. I just didn't find it that funny compared to his other films. Yeah. Uh, very, there were good moments, but yeah, I agree with you. It felt, it felt lazier than, mm. um, a f- you know, like the film of the week where there is, there is a genuine sort of, uh, intellect with this film. I mean, I'm of the same ilk by the time you get to men in tights in 93, I think there are moments that are really funny in men in tights, but it's not got the same sort of, like I said, the, the political satire in mm. it and that sort of, self-awareness i mean blazing saddle comes out in, in 1974 which is you know after a whole decade of civil rights movements and only coming out of that mm. and exiting into that sort of summer of love golden age of of art and culture basically in 1974 and obviously yeah it falls on a period backdrop of, of a western film but it is quite interesting how quick like we said the misdirect from the start having this song that's very grandiose and traditional to spaghetti <laughs> westerns, and then leading into that opening scene of of African Americans working on the on the rail and and these buffooning white morons, yeah. mm. and just that intel immediate intellect sort of divide, but how hilarious it is, and then at the same time, where 
the power dynamic is completely out of whack and and i think it's such a fun hook for yeah. an audience i think i think the scene it really does i mean that opening scene hilariously does that it sort of highlights the almost the intellectual differences between the them. camp town but, lady <laughs> <laughs> but then there's the other scene with the with the governor and, and that is mel brooks isn't it playing the governor <laughs> the cross-eyed governor is approving the um is it like what is it called the paddle uh, the the paddle um, ball thing yeah it's like a paddle ball like yeah a, and like the, they're gonna trade that with the indians for i think land land <laughs> and it's so like so it's it's got all these great like commentary on just like how racism has has driven us uh over the last you know couple of hundred years and i think the western's a perfect spot for it because not only is it taking place after the the civil war so there's all that going on for it but then the western genre itself it's like that that you can i mean how many video essays can you find about like here here are how all these random western films are racist in all sorts of different ways so it it sort of make it makes sense in, in the sense that it's also making fun of hollywood's portrayal well i mean he literally then goes and does red face halfway through the film <laughs> um depicting oh himself as a God. native american yeah um and then immediately breaking the accent and depiction <laughs> to have his traditional sort of, uh, I think it's a Boston accent. Yeah, it is. A... It is ballsy of him because not even just like the performances and, and the, the decision to to tackle this subject matter. Because you look at the producers, which he made you know several years before this, and it feels like he's right at home because in that film he's coming from this Jewish background. So making a film that's sort of geared towards Nazis and, and Hitler, and and it's done in not so much a parody way in the sense that they're making a stage play that's pro-Hitler and, and yada yada. That's all hilarious. But it's like, okay, well, him growing up Jewish, he feels like this is like a story that he's sort of born to tell in a sense. Yeah. So this one, is it's a little more outside of his wheelhouse and it becomes very overt. I mean, there's jokes about the the KKK in this film. Like, that. <laughs> it's not it's not a subtle commentary. <laughs> On race and Where are the white women at? (laughs) (laughs) And by the way, um, is it Cleveland Little? Oh, my God. Props to him. What an absolute trip. He's phenomenal in the film. First of all, he's in a film called Vanishing Point, which is so awesome. It's an awesome sort of card race through America, and and he plays like the... um, like the DJ radio host that sort of chips in throughout the film, and he's so charismatic in that. But... That was uh, that was 1971, so this is a little bit after that where he gets the lead role in this film, and he's such just a sport, and that that's yeah. the thing as well because the film, for as much of a commentary against race as it is, there's still so many like n bombs <laughs> in the film. This like you said, blackface early. Oh, sorry, red is um red face. Yeah, yeah. it's um th- there's still a lot of like. Ooh, this doesn't age well type humor in the film, even though it all is in service of criticizing racism. So I I want to give props to him. He's an absolute trooper in this film. Yeah, and he's and he's funny and he's charismatic yeah. and he and there is I mean there's so many really great moments uh, in in throughout the film and obviously you know he has just pure charisma mm. when he's doing it and. I mean, there's that moment when he gets the when he gets the sheriff gig, and he's got the the Gucci, oh no, Armani esque um, saddle, and he's just there, and he's riding, and he's got that beaming smile, and it's yeah. just so funny. Yeah. Um, and I just, 
I do love when he rides past the um the jazz the band in the desert. <laughs> Completely deconstructing <laughs> film. But that's that like you the said, you know, it's that it's the, obviously yeah, the from the non diegetics diegetic music, but it's that level of effort and intellect mm. um that this film has that yeah, I, I do agree. It's a little bit more absent in those later films, the men in tights, the space balls of it, because he's just breaking the fourth wall sometimes because, like you said, it's a Mel Brooks sort of directorial staple. Whereas, it feels like that's what was expected of him in those later films. Why he, It feels very purposeful when he does it. I mean, this is... they The whole sort of climactic scene of the film and the, the caper they undergo... Mm. Um, the people of Rock Ridge is to build a <laughs> fake Western set. <laughs> so all of the outlaws go running through and destroying the wrong town. And yeah. it's just such a clever thing to the point where the, the fight unfolds and they literally break out of their film. Yeah. And that's so clever considering, you know, um, I think other films, even more contemporary examples like Asteroid City with the, the mm. sort of breaking out of the film aspect. Yeah. And it's, it's you know, it's reasonably effective in Asteroid City, but it's not as effective as something like this where it's just absurd and almost Looney Tunes-esque. Yeah. Um, there, oh, God, there was one moment that felt very Looney Tunes-esque where um, I think it's, it's Sheriff Bart. He's, like, running somewhere and there's the sound effect. Yeah. Oh, God, what was it? There was definitely a moment like that in, in Blazing Saddles. Yeah. it's. I think the comedy hits, it hits quickly, it hits fast. And there's, I mean, there's so many aspects, you know, we're talking about like Cleveland Little's performances, and mm. but we haven't even, I mean, you got to, you got to give Wilder some, you know, you got to give him some credit, don't you? Yeah. And, and apparently he was cast very last second. Which was which is surprising. He kind of came in as like the film's hero to to portray the role. But I love. It's funny because he he's sort of when you first meet him, he's got that sort of disgruntled drunk veteran feel to him. You know, he was the the kid or the child. Mm. I can't remember what it was. Um, but what I love as well is is he's almost like this just this um venue for the filmmakers to sort of make fun of like how classic westerns have been edited in the past, especially with the first off the the trick of getting is it the chess piece that he grabs that just disappears oh, yeah. like magic <laughs> and it's just like the it gun has, one's my favorite where he literally just he doesn't, doesn't move, move his arms and the guns <laughs> all come fly i mean it's perfect it's just like it's taking what we're so used to the editing in a spaghetti western where we everything's so quick and it's meant to be like so quick that we can't even you know bear to understand this like amazing athletic sort of gun wielding that we're seeing and in this version it, it's taken that little extra bit further where he, he, we don't he doesn't move <laughs> he's faster than the the space oh my god i can't even speak anymore but needed him in back to the future part three yeah, exactly <laughs> no it is really good um i obviously like i said when we're talking about this political satire and you did bring up the fact in the producers He's brave, and obviously he's coming from that Jewish heritage, and mm. and and as a young, like we said, you know, this man was ninety-seven, which means he was very, 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 very much aware of all of the horrible things that occurred in World War Two. This man yep. is born in nineteen twenty-six. Oh my god, he's born in nineteen twenty-six. <laughs> oh my god, he's nine. He was nineteen at the end of World War Two, so that, that puts you in perspective. Um, and would he have been enlisted? Or drafted. No, he probably would have been a little young. Sure. Um, 
just a little, probably a little too young for that. Sure, but yeah. obviously very cogn- um, cognitively aware mm. of everything that was happening. But um, And then to go on to make a film like that. And then obviously, like I said, living through then the 60s as a, a man in his 30s, mm. 40s. Um, and then being brave enough to, yeah, tackle, obviously, the political con- commentary aspects here, you know. Yeah, the, there are jokes in there that are quite funny. The, the a lot of the white characters um, are moronic and and simple, mm. even um, except for Hedley Lamar, who is this, but is still comical and kind of a whingy little child. Yeah, um, and it is hilarious that sort of boldness, and then for him to even make fun of himself being this governor esque character, and he plays a very well, a more subdued version in Spaceballs, but having, yeah, this cross-eyed um, buffoon who yep. is just uh, listening work, work, to... Work, 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 yes. work, work, work. <laughs> Hello, boys. Uh, um, he's distracted. He's distracted by the boobies. He's clearly lived a long life for a man who <laughs> seems to have a lot of secretaries. That's it. Um, but it, it's, it is quite funny, obviously. I mean, his films are... Progressive in in some senses, but obviously his depiction of women is probably not super progressive. Mm. I guess um, there are no strong female characters in uh, any of his films that I can sure. uh, recollect. Yeah. But from a from the racial point of view, I think this film is, though a satire, is is quite um, progressive in its undertone there and. I think, I think it actually is Gene Wilder that... Uh, I'll see if I can pull up the quote, but he did say something along the lines of this film um, uh, that it is obviously like a racial critique, but the, it sort of smacks you over the head with it while also making you laugh at the same time. Yeah. So it sort of has almost that, that dual purpose. And I think that's why I sort of... Yeah, like you said, we appreciate the earlier side of his career because he's able to do that, that sharp, hilarious comedy, no. sort of that irreverent... I just love the Nonsense idea of comedy. creating a villain that all he cares about is winning an Oscar. <laughs> and he's not doing anything in the film. He's no, just exactly. he's just sending other people to do his work for him. And he and it is hilarious that he is a man with tiny man syndrome. Mm. <laughs> it was a great performance. <laughs> the Hedley Lamar villain. Yes, yes. <laughs> when he's giving that speech and he's like, this is my Oscar award winning speech. <laughs> They're going to play it at the ceremony. Oh my this will God. be the moment. It's just so good. Is it um Lily? Who's the one that seduce, tries to yes. seduce Sheriff, Sheriff Bart? Yeah. That um I did find it very funny when she goes to blow out a, just a lamp, like an electrical lamp <laughs> that's been hidden there on the set. <laughs> The other thing I wish they did, because they have, like, a lot of environmental jokes like that with the props design of, like, you mm. wouldn't immediately notice that there's, like, a, an inaccurate object for the period in the room. But I wish they did more with the camera, more specifically, when you figure Spaghetti Westerns, you've got these, you know, long, blistering, wide angles that are very cinematic. And, um, I mean, I literally did watch, you know, a Sergio Leone film right before watching this film. So it was very apparent, like, oh, it's not as cinematic. It feels more like a like a stage play a lot of yeah. the time. I, I just wonder if there was more opportunity for jokes with the camera. I mean, there is one with the, the wider shot um, when um, the first time, obviously, um, Bart is entering uh, 
into Rockridge. Right. And uh, one of the Johnsons, the old homeless oh, Johnsons, um, <laughs> is trying to say that he's like... Oh, yeah. Um, an N-word, and yeah. the bell keeps going off, and they keep going, oh, the sheriff's near. That's like that's one I can yeah. think about. But that, um, the humour there is more so the like the sound design yeah. and like the miscommunication. It's not necessarily like how far away he is or the camera playing with that. No. You almost could have yeah. one of those... There's a scene in a, such a... You know, it's great you watch Life of Brian, but in Monty Python, there's, mm-hmm. a, there's a sequence when Lancelot is charging. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know that and scene. It just it's takes so forever. good. And then all <laughs> of a sudden, he's right there. And then he's That's like, the kind of stuff I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah like jokes <laughs> that only work with the camera and the editing. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it's so good. It's scene. really funny. I've definitely seen that scene. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. But no, I, I suppose there isn't any quite like that that I could think of other than um yeah there's a wide I mean there's that wide shot well, but, with the musical number where it's yeah. throw out your hands. Well even even the shot that um leads when we get the wide view of everyone fighting and then the camera sort of like sort of tilts up and pans over to where you oh we're in Hollywood now and you kind of see the other sound stage. I guess that sort of counts. Yeah. And I think because it's sort of so imperative to our understanding of the final scenes of the film we don't really think of it as an isolated joke but it, it is in a way like that shot is funny yeah you do a double take of it, uh, in the same way that the the modern lamp is in the period set that's also like a wait what where are we now sort of moment <laughs> that does take you out of it um obviously intentionally to make we need to uh, we need more villains to assemble all of the historical villains of history <laughs> <laughs> in one line Oh, I, I like God. the, uh, I, that, but that's a good, I mean, that's a great example of that. One of them long dolly shots that just escalates mm. um, and does a really good job of it. Yeah. Um, and like you said, creates that period dysmorphia. Um, yeah. Where you yeah. don't really know where you are. Um, yeah. It's a, it's a funny film and it, I love, like I said, how brave, um, and we don't see many films being that bold and brave with their, critique on Hollywood or mm. society and um I mean we we shined a light when we were talking about Tropic Thunder. Yeah. Um and I can't think of many films that since bite, bite the hand that feeds them. Yeah, sense, that, yeah. That are brave enough to tackle that I don't think we'll ever see a film like Tropic Thunder or these Mel Brooks esque features. Sure. Unless that ninety seven year old man who's clearly very uh <laughs> Active or it's is doing get back in the director's chair, mate. The man, the man should, yeah, he should go one more time. I reckon. <laughs> I wouldn't mind that at all. And I would just go. I would go full crazy with it. Yeah, I'd be like, it's my last film. I don't care what PC Warriors say. I'm just right. Gonna, I I'm see. just gonna drop a, a drop a bit of Mel Brooks. Oh, well, make sure Warner Brothers don't fund this one because they will just delete your film before it comes to streaming. Yeah, you know they're getting investigated because of that now. For like these tax, almost tax. Yeah, emotions. for the tax write-offs and deleting these films, and they're getting investigated now, which I think is awesome, because it is getting very suspicious how many of these films they're deleting, especially because there's the new, is it the Coyote animated film that they're doing, that they've axed, that apparently had really, really good tests, uh, audience reactions, and they just got and rid they of still axed it. So I think mm, that's part of the reason that bit of side hustle money. It sounds like yeah, to me, it's Jake, very sus dude, Zeke. Yeah. What's your highlight scene? Um, I think the the Mongo attacking Rock Ridge is a, is a great <laughs> scene. 
But I, I've always I thought love my... he's chained up like the cross into the into the <laughs> corner of the cell. Uh, <laughs> I, I think for me though, Hedley Lamar has always been my favourite part of the film. Um, I love that there's the relationship he has with Taggart, um, who's his mm. kind of number two in command, um, and they obviously this dynamic is very similar, and I think in both in. Men in Tights and in Spaceballs, this number one, number two commander. Obviously, it's Darth Head. Is it Darth Head? No, oh, it's God, Darth, Darth Helmet. Darth Helmet, that's and it. And I think it's his sort of Lord Moth, Moff Tarkin-esque um, number two in command guy. Yeah. Um, but the Lamar, the Lamar and Taggart relationship so funny from the get-go when he's got this bop on his head yeah. and, and they've got this, like... <laughs> Kind of pseudo, like low-key romantic sort of like yeah. undertone to their relationship, and the the fact that Taggart washes his back, and <laughs> when when the hangings are happening, yeah. <laughs> that's great comedy where yeah, he's like trying yeah. to schedule the. Ha- I think the scheduling the hanging scene. I'm gonna go with that because that's really funny because mm. of the fact that Lamar keeps hitting his head. On the window, <laughs> yeah, yeah, window sill, and and yeah, just... speak, speaking of windows, that there's the moment when um when Bart is um what's it called? He's opening that window, and it's the the woman who yelled very not nice things in him earlier, gives him the pie. Yeah, that 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 uh, window is very underutilized. Like there could have been mm. so many rooms for jokes as he keeps opening up the window and yeah. seeing what's behind it and. Yeah, it's a bit underutilized. I I like that highlight scene, Zeke. Yeah. What about you? It's a good one. Uh, I think for me, we talked a little bit about it, but I think it has to be, um, pretty much that whole ending sequence. Not not when they break into Hollywood, but the whole fake town, the fact that everyone going after it, they all have to pay their own individual tolls oh to get God, ten toll. cents. It's so good. <laughs> oh, sorry, God, like, God, we're gonna get dime. tons of coins or dimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and then and then when they get into the town, how fake everyone looks, all the fake people there. And then is it the horses that go flying up? I guess that's kind of a camera joke is that we're far away. We're seeing yeah. the, the town explode. And I think it's horses just flying in the air. I like the <laughs> the heightened frame rate where it gets to... Oh, the, it yes. always goes back to that 30s like it slapstick-esque. They're trying to speed things up. Good, Bad, the Ugly does that a lot. Where it yeah. speeds up the, the timing. Like when... It, when um, Tuco jumps on the back of the train after he's... That was mm. an awesome scene, but he's very gross when he gets the handcuff taken off the train. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think... that I was dying during that whole yeah. scene laughing. It's, it is nice to talk about um, sort of someone like Mel Brooks in terms of... And shedding that spotlight on him because I think it, he was one of those real pioneers of a, of a bold comedy type, mm. um, which... To this point, there had been comedy films, but they were predominantly slapstick or or situational comedies, if you will. And mm. I, I think to take it that step further and be bold and, and challenging was was why people, I think, revere him retrospectively. Mm. Because that took... That did take balls, you know? To, he was making to... films that, that people thought were unfundable or at least, um, like unobtainable to make money for the studios and they almost axed the film because of it yeah and it's a pioneer aspect you know we don't get all of these films from you know the you know from the apatows to the Mm. rogans and 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 all of those films that are more risque without someone kind of breaking 
those sensory ceilings. Mm. I mean, it's funny, you know, you came in with that trivia fact about him having the first fart in film, and obviously it proved to be false with your considerable research, but <laughs> the fact that even that mythos is there that yeah. in 1974, no one had farted on camera. Yeah, which is insane, but the more I think about it, I'm like, I really can't think of any examples and other had, than that one. Yeah, yeah. so the, I think that that's, that's... I brought a full circle back to your... Oh, excellent. Well uh, done. Well done. <laughs> Blazing Saddles is currently out on Binge. It is. Go give it a watch. Jake, what's new to streaming platforms and cinemas this week? There's not a lot coming to streaming. We've got films like Fear to Camp coming to Disney Plus this week. Uh, Sydney Sweeney's Reality coming to Binge. I'm actually really keen to watch this. So I might watch that. In See, the for a big month. I know, it's a lot a lot of films on the old docket. I love it. Um, coming to Netflix, we've got a couple of films, including Leave the World Behind, which sees a family's getaway to a luxurious rental home take an ominous turn when a cyber attack uh, knocks out their devices and two strangers appear at their door. It stars Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, Mahershala Ali, and Kevin Bacon. It's a good lineup, that. Yeah, what a cast. Interesting lineup. Yeah. I'm curious who's who. Who are the two strangers? And who's part of the family? I can see Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke being married. Yeah. I can see that. Oh, yeah, because it's three. Mm. You know, it's funny, though. Mm. I, I, I see Julia Roberts, Ethan Hawke, and Kevin Bacon, all similar ages. Mahasha, I didn't, Mahasha, Mahashala Ali. Mahasha he must Ali. be younger, right? I thought Quite he was younger. younger. I, but he might not be. Well, he's probably one of the two strangers. Yeah. Because he, I thought he, yeah, because the other three, I think they're in their 50s and 60s, I think, for mm. Bacon. Whereas he, I didn't think he was that old. I thought he was... No. There, there must be a narrative reason why they needed, mm, like, intriguing. someone younger in that. that uh, and that's of, coming to... Uh, Netflix. Netflix. Also coming to Netflix, we've got The Archies, which reimagines the Archie comics in a live-action musical comedy set in 1960s India. Hmm. Very interesting. Okay. Now, coming to cinemas. This is a big week, Zeke. Bradley Cooper directs and stars in Maestro, which sees him portray the famous American conductor Leonard Bernstein. There's a lot of controversy out there about his nose prop. What, uh, that it's like over the top? Yeah, over the top. But then the the Bernstein family came out and said, like, it's fine. He had a big nose. Chill out, everyone. <laughs> I like that. That's the main... Um, it's a nose. That's the main bloody talking point for this film. Okay. But I'm very curious. There's a lot of talk about him spending, you know, I think years learning how to conduct like a certain piece of music to, to do it authentically. The makeup looks fantastic. Yep. Um, I have to I have to giggle because how he was like wanting his best director nom for A Star Is Born. I know. And, and, and it's going to happen again. He's going to get actor and not director. It's going to happen again. I just know it. And that'll make me laugh. It will. It will. It's something about someone who's is like really looking for, and it's so bad because I think it comes back to that tall poppy syndrome that Australians are like plagued with. But it's like part right. of me is like, oh yeah, you want that best director nom? <laughs> like, <laughs> you think you're entitled to it? Oh god. Well, look, I'm I'm very curious how this film actually it's is. Hmm? I mean, it's a tough tough yeah. act to follow from Tar. In terms of Maestro oh, films. Oh, right. I see what you mean. Yeah. Like, everyone's going to compare it to Tar. I know what you mean. Yeah, uh, yeah that's true. And in a way, I kind of wonder what a, the production was in this film because A Star Is Born was a while ago now. Five years. Yeah, 20, yeah 2018. So, um, maybe, yeah, maybe he missed the mark. He took too long. I don't know what's... I don't know what... I mean, COVID. I hope there's a second act in this film. 
Because <laughs> it was the best. It was, it was still one of my favorite first acts in a film. Oh, it's amazing. Yeah. It's amazing. I want to rewatch it because maybe maybe we're a little harsh on it. Who knows? Oh, no. I, I think post-Shallow, I'm pretty confident that post that Shallow number... Mm. It would have been the best short film ever. <laughs> it's just a 40-minute film that ends with Shallow. Yeah. The rest we can leave to our imaginations. Now, there's a few more coming to cinema, including The Boy and the Heron, which is the latest uh, big Studio Ghibli film, or at least the latest film from a- Hayao Miyazaki. Uh, yep. So uh, that's it's got very... an insane voice cast for the it English does. version. It does. So there are both versions at cinemas, so depending on which you can go to the D-Box version or... Whatever, you will get either the subtitled version or the dubbed version. The dubbed version includes Christian Bale, Dave Bautista, Gemma Chang, Willem Dafoe, Karen Fukuhara, Mark Hamill, Robert Patterson, Florence Pugh. It goes on, Zeke. Well, I'm... I'm Okay, so I'm going to pose, pose you this, Jake. Mm. So you've seen a couple of Ghibli films, haven't you? I've really only seen Spirit of the Way, which is shocking. Okay, so you're open. You're probably open to seeing the original language, or would you be more inclined to be on the dub? When when we covered Spirit of the Way on here, I most certainly wanted to watch the um, subtitled version, the OG. But with a cast like this, it's like well, they put so, they clearly put so much effort mm. into putting together like an A star English cast. I think I'm like it, you. Kind of almost have to just for the effort they went to. And I think when it comes to Ghibli films, Ghibli Ghibli, yeah, however you want to say it, it's what I say when I hurt my toe. Ghibli, Ghibli. They, they make such a deliberate effort to have these really mm. like this is insane that cast. That's but, true. It's not but the first time. As, as right. someone I, I've seen, Howl's Moving Castle, that at yep. Christian Bale, Billy Crystal, like there were mm. there were like real names in there, and and Ponyos had Liam Neeson, right? Um. They've they've had those sort of voice, uh, really always really strong casting in there, and you know, there if it was an anime that wasn't a studio Ghibli Ghibli uh, f- <laughs> film, yeah, I'd be like, yeah, I'll, I'll just watch it in Japanese, like I'll watch it with the subtitles. Um, but I think, yeah, in a post obviously post Spirited Away world, mm. they've made those films particularly palatable with their their dub. I think. Yeah, because I mean, that's the big reason people want to just go for the OG is, okay, well, it's not going to sound... They do it assuming that the English dub is bad. That mm. the, the voices aren't, like, quite right contextually or that the, or the lines aren't being translated properly. And, yeah, with a cast like this, I'm like, well, they've clearly put in the effort. They're all fantastic actors, so they're all, I imagine, doing a great job at contextualizing it and the, and the actual the written translation, the lines they're speaking... Like, I'm sure the effort was put in, so I think it's totally fine to watch the dub. Yeah, and I take it that step further. They've probably designed, particularly these more contemporary Ghibli Ghibli films, they've probably designed them with... I reckon they've made them almost in parallel. I would would Mm. be... Like, where they've they've thought about the line delivery in both language contexts. Yeah. Whereas, like you said, in traditional dubs, it's... Japanese and oh, that kind of sounds like what they're saying. Yeah, and there's a much bigger difference between one and the other. I think if you look at, I think isn't there a whole thing about ramen in Parasite, and they changed the um, no, I don't think it was ramen. It was some food that was like rethought of and rewritten because of the English translation. There was something about that in Parasite, which. To your point, pe- it was like pizza, wasn't it? Like I feel like I've, I, I know what you're talking yeah, about. I, I remember I, hearing it was something. It was something, but mm. 
to your point, that is a consideration when they do these films, or at least, um, obviously, that's Korean. But you're right, like the multi-language, this is going to an international audience, that kind of aspect to it. So you're not yeah. wrong. They probably do think about that a lot, even before they animate and, and finalize Mate, the They've been doing it with Bluey now. Oh, Bluey's got like... Bluey, Bluey's huge. Bluey, you know, they're going to make a, th- a Bluey theme park in Brisbane now. Wow. So I, I think that's a testament that we have now created, I think, one of, if not the most currently... Uh, Rec- internationally recognized kids shows it is huge and it's great i've watched mm, like I've episodes it. it's yeah. it's good but nice. it's the same thing they've got like the american version so when uh, australia and there's like australian slang they actually cut oh, it oh interesting and they they put a more internet there's the international version and then there's the australian version the ones that don't use they drop the c-bomb in there yeah <laughs> that's the international version oh baza oh baza uh, also coming to cinemas, we've got Dicks the Musical, which comes from A. <laughs> there you go. It got it got its laugh, Zeke. It got its laugh. Comes from A twenty four. Sees two self obsessed businessmen discover their long lost identical twins and come together to plot the reunion of their eccentric divorced parents. Okay. Yeah, it's um. I think there's a lot of divisiveness. It sounds like for an the trailer. It seems very over the top and flashy in a way that. It, well, is this a twenty-four level like uh, artistic, challenging type film, or is this just a is this just a big joke? I suppose we go yeah. open-minded, don't That's we? That's it. We have to. We've also got a few more films, including Master Gardener, written and directed by Paul Schrader, sees Joel Edgerton as a meticulous horticulturist. Horticulturist, my goodness, which I think is to do with tending to gardens. It is right. Um, now his life is thrown into chaos when he is told he must take on an apprentice. So I didn't realize he also directed films like First Reformed and all of that. Paul Schrader film mm. starring Joel Edgington. Yes. Where do I get that in my system? <laughs> well, This Week in Cinemas is where you get that. Dude, that is like... <laughs> I love Schrader films. Like, yep. they're slow... They are slow burns. Like, I liked sure. Card Counter, but I loved First Reformed. Mm. I love the the slowness of them, and if it's Joel freaking Edgington. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, that's a good combo right there. I'm I like that a lot. It's like that is like the Schrader Hawk combo, but the Australian mm. equivalent. <laughs> Excellent. I wonder if it was shot or made in Australia. Probably not. I doubt it. Yeah, it's okay. We can get what. Give we'll him take. his flowers. Give Joel Edgington his flowers. He's brilliant. He deserves them. Yeah, he definitely. He deserves, deserves an Oscar nom. I reckon. Maybe not for this film. I haven't watched the film yet, but sure. I I want to see a, a Joel Edgington moment where mm. it's like he gets his flowers because the man is great. This could be it. Yeah, no, it does feel silent though. It feels like a not really. Um, I think Hawk I haven't heard a lot of people talk about it. The first film, yeah, but that's what I mean. Like the opportunity is there, but I just haven't heard people talk about Master Gardener as opposed to Silent Night which takes place on Christmas Eve and sees a man, after witnessing the death of his son during a gang war, go down a path of bloody revenge. Sounds generic as hell, but that's okay. We've got One True Loves, which sees a woman unexpectedly forced to choose between the husband she thought was long dead and the fiancé who has finally brought her back to life. That also sounds generic as hell. (laughs) We're getting a few of those, sadly, but finally... And this is exciting. So there's a bunch of films. These don't come out until later in the month, but a lot of them are previewing this week. So I'll just give you the quick little heads up, everyone. You can watch Nick Cage's Dream Scenario, another A24 film, which is previewing this 
Thursday the 7th at Luna. That same day, over at Hoyt's, you can preview the new Sir Anthony Hopkins film, One Life. Uh, Taika Waititi's Next Goal Wins is previewing this Saturday the 9th at Hoyt's. And Disney's Wish is previewing on Sunday the 10th, also at Hoyt's. So uh, if you go, they're mostly at Hoyt's. The only one that's not at Hoyt's is Dream Sequence at Luna. But if you go on there, if you go on the Hoyt's website, you find the film. There'll be at least one or two days of screenings that you can sneak those in if you cool. desire. So a lot of previews there, which is exciting. Very exciting stuff. Well, we're not catching any of those next week on the show, Jake. <laughs> no. no. Well, we might catch them, but they're not our film of the week. Sure. But Jake, what is our film of the week? Next week on the show, Zeke. Begin again. Mr. Mulligan, this is Distressed Records. Your 10 o'clock meeting started 15 minutes ago. So what are we doing here? It's not working. You gotta go. I'm taking my client list. It's not Jerry Maguire. I'm taking my art list. I got to get away from Get away. I'm coming back for that. Don't tell your mom I lost my job today. You got money to pay for these? I'm a kid. I don't have any money on me. You have your pocket money. I spent that on condoms. No, 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 no. Total rock star. <laughs> Unbelievable. We don't want anything to stand in his way. Capish? I'm just tagging along. <laughs> Babe, we need to talk. So, this is a new song for anyone who's ever been alone in the city. So you find yourself at the subway. You realize it's the end of the line. I was having a nervous breakdown, and then I heard your song. I want to make records with you. Come on, let's get out of here. You're going to have to get these beers, though. A songwriter is devastated after her boyfriend breaks up with her. However, she discovers a renewed sense of purpose when a record label executive notices her. So this is, I reckon this is like our before trilogy. Like, this is our... Mm, yes. If we're bookmarking our show yeah. with a trilogy that... Um, well, we're, we're, it would be this one. It'd be the Carney Music Trilogy, mm. which I guess now is... Is it a quadrilogy? I guess, because... It, is it Flora? Yeah. The new, uh, the new Apple film that he did, which is definitely like a music-inspired film. I call them uh, motivated musicals. Because they don't just break out into song and dance. That's such a good way. Non-diger. It's all like... Did you pick that up somewhere? Or is that a you? No, I just made that up. It's a Jake Diagrella exclusive. It is. That's actually a really good way of describing it. I want royalties, Zeke, every time someone says it. Mate, you got to write a... You gotta write a thesis. <laughs> throw it, to, throw it to Andy. Get him. There you <laughs> go. He'll throw it in there for me. Um, but um, motivated music. I love that. Yeah, because it's like, well, all the music in these films. Like, they're motivated. They're either the characters just singing it spontaneously, people around them, they're reacting realistically to it. They have the instruments. They're recording, it. like, a song in a music studio. Yeah, in particular, Begin Again and Once definitely adhere to that. Sing Street breaks it with that Drive It Like You Stole It number, but it's at least... It's like a dream th- sequence, isn't it? Well, yeah, but they are singing it in the real world. It just has that dream sequence yes, aspect gotcha. to it. Um, that's, a good, that's a good pickup. That is um, a good pickup. But particularly begin again like you said and and once especially mm. has the motivated musical aspect but that's our f- original golden chalk top winner it is <laughs> I mixed in with a countdown through the decades nomination yes. at sing street 
and then wow. topped off with just we had to pick it because we had to, do, we had to squeeze it in our final ten because it was very important to the show's history. I think. Well, yeah, and it's the middle child of the two, and I reckon it's just it's a softly spoken hit. This film, mm. and it's a great film. I'm curious because yeah, I, I actually do remember uh, well after we watched it, there was a little controversy about it, um, especially coming off once which was so authentic, they cast musicians over actors, and I mean, this film breaks a few of those rules, but it's still a great film, nevertheless, and I'm keen to revisit it. Excellent, but until then, thank you for joining us for the Cinema Sideshow Podcast. I was Zeke. I was Jake. We'll catch you next week with Begin Again. <laughs>